Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So the other night we were coming home and we pull onto the lake road and there are what, four, five state police officers? I think it was four. With their lights on. Uh, Several of them were out of their cars with flashlights and their guns drawn and they were going through the woods. I didn't notice any guns. I did see flashlights. Oh, there were guns. Mm -hmm. And we were like, what the hell is this all about? So how do we find out what's going on? Of course, we immediately, uh, well, you did, you posted it on Facebook. Hey, what's going on? Yeah. You got an answer. I did. Apparently, our local convenience store, uh, which we adore, uh, had been held up. We live in a very rural area where the most violent thing that ever happens is occasionally a porcupine gets hit by a car. It's very upsetting. When there's an armed robbery at this little mom and pop store across the road, it's pretty unusual. Except for when it happened to that same store five years ago. That's true. But yeah, that's true. So twice. Yeah. Twice now. But please go ahead. Well, I just ran down to uh, to the corner store and I talked to Jason. I got the inside story of what happened. The guy who uh, attempted to rob the store. Which it, I can't find a picture of him anywhere. He lives right in the neighborhood. He shops there all the time. He is well known by everybody. I used to work at this store, by the way. Yeah, you made pizza there. People come in all the time. They say, I need your pizza. You make the best pizza. And I would say, thank you. I agree. He comes in and, of course, everybody knows him. He wasn't wearing a mask or anything dramatic like that. He just, you know, he just came in. So he comes in, he takes a six pack out of the cooler and then asks for a pack of cigarettes and said, "I'll, I'll pay you later. And Jason, the guy who owns the store, goes, no, man, that's not how it works. You have to pay for it now. And he pulled up his shirt and he had a gun tucked in his belt and he tapped his gun. This guy could go away for 30 years for a pack of cigarettes and a, and a, <laughs> and a six pack of beer. Are you kidding me? That's that's the saddest story I've ever heard. Sadder than the porcupine? No. Okay, well, there you go. No, and it's just, it's one of those things that like, We've talked about how I really, I the idea of like a home invasion or a robbery uh, bothers me so much. And and you're like, yeah, nobody likes the idea of being robbed. And I'm like, yeah, but it's my stuff. It's <laughs> yeah. mine. You can't have it. <laughs> and I think there's, there's this real feeling, like this deep down feeling of like, you think that you're entitled to my things? Like, no, I'm just, you're rude. And no. Maybe you should write a book on proper robbery etiquette. It's rude. <laughs> Anyway, nobody got hurt uh, except this guy's pride and probably, you know, the next couple of decades of his life will be... Why can't I find a picture of him? I don't know. It drives me nuts. I know I've seen him. So you go first. This is your turn to go first. What do you have? What you got? Okay. For me. So... I wanted to talk about this. This is something that I actually was researching kind of on my own, not thinking that it would end up being a topic. It's kind of stuffy in here. Do you mind if I open the deck? Not at all. All right. 
this is a story that I didn't become familiar with until later on in my life. In 1998, I was very self-absorbed. There was a lot going on in teenage me. Right. You were listening to uh, Third Eye Blind. I went to see Third Eye Blind because Eve Six was opening for them. <laughs> so I went to see Eve Six, okay? I, I see, okay. God. Anyway, <laughs> so it wasn't until later on that I became familiar with this story, but you probably remember it as you were already, you know, like an aged adult reporting news. Not listening to Third Eye Blind. By the way- You Kat, like Third Eye Blind more than I do. Cat Cat actually has the entire box set of Sugar Ray. She's a big Sugar Ray fan. I don't know what you're doing right now, but I don't care for it. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Proceed. It's funny. When uh, you said Sugar Ray, I pictured Guy Fieri in my head. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) That is weird. (laughs) Anyway. All right. So, uh, uh, prepare for the party to come way down. Okay, here we go. Uh, March 21st, 1998, Amy Lynn Bradley. Her parents, Ron and Iva, and her brother, Brad, left for a week-long cruise on the Rhapsody of the Seas. Do you remember this story? I'm not sure. I I think I might. Okay. Okay. So the vessel departed San Juan, Puerto Rico, and traveled to its first port of call, which was Aruba. So the family spent the day on Aruba, as cruisers do, had a lot of fun now, Uh, went to dinner, they did formal night. It It was a nice trip. I guess Amy was a little hesitant about going on the trip in the first place because Uh, The ocean's big and scary. She was a trained lifeguard, but um, still, it is a little overwhelming. First first time cruiser? That's right. Yeah. And it is this the idea of all that can be underneath uh, when you're on a cruise ship is a little overwhelming. We've talked about that. Yeah, we were cruising through the Bermuda Triangle, and the ship's uh, TV screen said that the ocean at that point was like a mile deep, and I thought you were going to die. It I just gave were... me those all body shivers, like yeah. where all of a sudden you recognize the situation that you're in and you're like, holy shit. Mm. And then obviously my brain goes to, I wonder what kind of animals are underneath <laughs> us that I've never even heard about. What's undiscovered under there? Anyway, they're having this family trip. It was paid for by Ron's company. And so they're they're just thrilled to be together having this family trip. Amy's 23 years old. Uh, her brother, Brad, is a little bit younger. And then her parents. So after dinner, parents go their separate ways. Brad and Amy go to the nightclub, the the disco on board, and do some dancing. They have some drinks. Um, And then Brad leaves the nightclub. Amy stays behind for a little bit longer. All the cruises you and I have been on, we have never gone to a disco to go dancing. We have not. We should at some point. No, I don't think so. It's just we get tired. Well, it's exhausting eating all the time. I mean, we look at stuff. That's true. We look at stuff. Occasionally, we will break up our nonstop eating by looking at things. So sometime around 5.15 a.m. and 5.30 a.m., Ron woke up in the cabin and saw that Amy was out on the balcony sleeping in a deck chair. All right. He thought, hey, she looks comfortable. She looks relaxed. I know she was up late. Those crazy kids. And he let her sleep and went back to bed. When he got up then at 6 a.m. for the day, she wasn't out on the balcony anymore. So... He thought it was a little weird. Uh, Maybe she had gone to take pictures. Maybe when she went to get coffee, he went out to see if he could find her. So he went to the social areas, the buffet, the sitting room. He said, I couldn't find her and I didn't know what to think because it was very much unlike Amy to leave and not tell us where she was going. So after a while of searching and being really concerned that he couldn't find her, um, Brad's looking as well. He went back to the room. He told Iva, I can't find Amy. And Iva said that she became concerned immediately. One, she knows Amy isn't someone to just take off without telling them. And two, she saw the look on her husband's face and she said that she'd never seen him look like that, that he didn't look like himself. Mm. He looked like he was absolutely frantic. So she knew it was serious right away. What year was this again? 98. 98. So this was before... There was widespread on-ship texting and, yeah, okay. Yeah. So all three are searching. 
and eventually they reach out to the captain and they ask, could you please page her? Could you do an all page and let people know that we're looking for her? Mm. And the captain said, no, of course, we can't do that. It will disturb the passengers. So the ship is getting ready to dock in Curacao and the family is still looking everywhere getting increasingly concerned because they don't even know where to start in in their brains. Like, if people start getting off the ship, if she's been kidnapped, will they take her off the ship? Mm. If they've left an area where she might have fallen overboard, should they be going back to that area? If, you know, there's all these questions. If they don't know where to start, then there's just this feeling of chaos and and helplessness. And I know from our experience cruising that whenever we're out on the balcony, inevitably we start to wonder, what would it be like if I fell off? It's terrifying. And you start looking at debris in the ocean that floats away from the ship and how quickly it just disappears. Yeah. You're a tiny little speck. It's true. Even if people are looking for you. Right. Now, keep in mind, they were pretty close to Curacao by the time uh, Amy was missing. So they wouldn't have been that far off of shore. And Amy is a trained lifeguard. Okay. The ship docks. Parents are freaking out. And they're asking the captain, please muster everyone. Don't let people get off the boat. This is If she's been kidnapped, if something has happened to her, then we need to have we need to be sure that all the people on board are accounted for. Hmm. You know, this is important. The captain refused. And at this point, they're kind of just going along business as usual. Obviously, they're recognizing that these parents have concerns. But I think where it was a young woman who had been out at the club, maybe they thought she had gone to someone's room. Sure. And those types of things, I'm sure they see all the time. I'm sure. So once the ship is docked, people start leaving the ship and the crew agrees to search the ship. The captain contacted the parents, said that the ship had been thoroughly searched and that nothing had been found. The family pointed out many people had already left the ship by the time the, the search had started. So, And again, this was before the, um, the boop boop cards. That's right. That you scan when you go in and out. So they had no idea who could have slipped out. I don't know how cruises worked before the boop boops. Did they take like a list? Did they have a list? I think you you had to have your identification, but also just your cruise boarding pass. Cruise boarding pass. Yes. Thank you. Okay. 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 That makes sense. So in addition to the ship, the people are still thinking, okay, well, she could have fallen overboard. So they're searching the sea, but no one in the family really buys that. Like I said, she was a trained lifeguard. She was hesitant to go on the ship in the first place. She didn't go anywhere near the railings. It wasn't her bag. All right, so the day's going by, and there's no sign of her. The ship's getting ready to leave. Iva is like, well, should we get off the boat? Should we stay on the boat? What do we do here? Obviously, they don't know what to do. And one of the crew members says, well, if she is on Curacao, then if you find out after we've left that she is on the island, you know, we're not going to be able to bring you back to the island. Hmm. We're not going to turn around for you. Right. So the family decides that they're going to get off the boat and stay on the island. So they get off, they call the U.S. Embassy, and they're actually closed. They call the FBI, and the FBI says, yes, we'll, we'll help you, but we won't be able to get there for a day. And so the family's kind of feeling helpless. They go around, they talk to people, they talk to taxi drivers, they show people pictures. And um, just as the cruise ship is getting ready to leave, Amy's mom gets a phone call from the FBI. And they said that you should get back on the ship because a thorough search had not been conducted. What? The FBI discovered that um, the ship's crew had searched the common areas. They did the same ship search that Amy's family had done. They looked in the buffet area. They looked on the deck. Something obvious. Yeah. By no means a thorough search. So the family gets back on the boat. Iva finds the captain and tells him, you lied to me. You told me you did this thorough search. We are serious. Our daughter is missing and you're wasting our time. And she's pissed at this point. And I I mean, I get it. So they continue their search. 
and two girls that had been at the club the night before, teenage girls, find Amy's parents. And they said that they'd been looking for them all day. And Amy's parents were like, yeah, we'll just get back on the boat. And these girls tell them that they saw Amy at like 5.30, 5.45 that morning with the band's bass player, the band that had been playing at that club that night. Okay. And he goes by the name Yellow. His real name's Alistair Douglas. According to Brad, he had seen Alistair Douglas and Amy talking earlier in the night at the club. That bass player, known as Yellow, claimed that he had parted ways with Amy around one. It's always the bass player, isn't it? So, <laughs> so it's really suspicious, obviously. There are also reports that one of the waiters the night before had been super creepy with Amy, had been asking her to get off the ship with him in Curacao the next day and go to this restaurant together. And Amy's dad was like, I would consider it fraternizing. I, you know, mm-hmm. they they all discouraged it. And Amy was like, no, no, you don't have to worry. I'm not doing that. It's creepy. Mm. This waiter had already shown that he, that was weird. Uh, there was this bass player guy. So when the, the family's searching now on the ship along with the ship's crew, Brad then recalled that earlier in the day when only the captain and the security crew knew that Amy was missing, he had run into that bass player and the bass player said, sorry to hear about your sister. Ooh, okay. Which Brad thought was real, real weird. That Yes. Um, so the FBI questions Alistair Douglas. Nothing really came of that. He changed his story. He said that he hadn't seen Amy since one. He said that he didn't know anything about it. They didn't have any way to prove that that was not true. Um, maybe Brad misunderstood what he heard. You know, there was a lot of maybes being thrown around. And it must have been so frustrating for the parents who are trying to figure out anything that makes any sense regarding the situation consider the fact that dad woke up at 5 45 and saw his daughter and then woke up at six and she was missing yeah that's horrifying also very strange is that the family discovers that all the photos that have been taken of amy by the cruise photo crew which you you know we've purchased those photos with us and mostly just to get them down off the board so no one else can see they look so nice um there's the one that looks nice i mean your hair is a little it was a little it was a bad hair day it was i mean i had seagoing hair i had the the quaff of a sailor i had semen hair anyway so the photo service on board all of amy's pictures are missing that's suspicious. And they discovered that the pictures had gone missing about nine hours before she was missing. Hmm. Out of all the people on the ship, every single one of her photos is missing. The FBI does their thorough search. It's called a bomb search. They went through everything and there's no sign of Amy. March 28th rolls around. It's time for the cruise to wrap up. The family has to get off this boat, which would be horrible. So they come home to Virginia. And they do interviews, they do news reports, they offer a $200,000 reward. And there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of contact being made, but there's no real information coming from it. So it's April 21st, about three or four weeks later, and the family decides that Ron and Brad should go back to Curacao. And they hand out flyers. They don't know what else to do. They get to a taxi, and the taxi driver immediately says, oh, I saw her the day that this boat came in, and she ran off the boat almost as soon as it, why do I want to say parked? Docked. Docked. So she got off the boat just about as soon as it docked, ran to my taxi, and asked me where the nearest phone was. Really? The... Taxi driver said, I won't forget that because she had the most beautiful green eyes I've ever seen. I will never Mm. forget her green eyes. Mm. And so her dad is encouraged because, okay, well, at least we have an idea of, you know, maybe she didn't fall off the boat. Okay. Right. right. That narrows it down at least. So some time passes. They, They do their flyers. They talk to people. No real movement is made in Curacao. They head home. 
uh, while they're on their way home, they get a call from someone who says that a body was found in Curacao, and they think it was a young female with brown hair. So they head back to investigate. Uh, But it turns out it was just the pelvic region of a man, um, and it didn't make any sense at all. So again, a dead end. They head home. 14 months goes by, and there's a Canadian businessman who reaches out to the family. And he said that months before, about five months after Amy went missing, he believes he saw her. He was on the beach in Curacao, rinsing off his scuba equipment, when he saw a young woman walking on the beach with two men flanking her. He was talking with another scuba person, guy, person and when she saw him she came up to him and just as she started to speak to him the two dudes caught up with her and took her into a nearby bar so Hmm. this guy david carmichael the canadian businessman he thought this was really suspicious so he went into the bar and he just kind of kept looking at her and kind of keeping an eye on her while she's in the bar the dudes wouldn't let her go near him but he felt like she was signaling to him. She turned a specific way toward him and then kind of put her hand on her shoulder so that he could see her back and her hand that was coming up over her shoulder. Mm -hmm. And she was pointing at her tattoo. Oh, smart. And then she turned sideways and pulled up her dress and there's a tattoo on her ankle. When he's watching this news report 11 months later and he sees... Amy Bradley on this news report, he's like, holy crap, that's that girl that I saw. He reaches out to the family. Can you imagine the moment of realization? No. I want to be good at that kind of thing, but I am 100% not. I will forget what you look like as soon as we leave each other because I remember... I remember like emotions and feelings and circumstances. I don't remember details. So I have, I'm like broken in that way and I could never be helpful in a police case. That's why I write everything down or take pictures of license plates. You should publish a coffee table book of all the license plate photos that you've taken over the years. I did just delete a bunch the other day. <laughs> <laughs> My phone memory is getting low. Mm-hmm. Um, not long after that, a member of the United States Navy reached out and said that he had seen Amy at a brothel in 1999. He claimed that she came up to him and whispered in his ear, my name is Amy Bradley and I can't get out of here. Wow. She was then whisked away once again. But being in the Navy, that boy was not supposed to be in a brothel. And so he didn't reach out to anyone for two years. Oh, my. So they still had this information, but it was a little bit later than, than maybe they would have wished for it yeah. to, to yeah. have gotten to them. There was another potential sighting. In 2005, a woman named Judy claimed to have seen Bradley in Barbados. She was in a department store in a restroom, and a woman came in with uh, two men, and the two men were being very aggressive with her and kept saying something about this being their deal and you're not going to mess up our deal. Like pushing into her and Mm. telling her, don't mess this up for us. And Judy's hiding in the bathroom stall because she's freaked out. She waits until she can hear the dudes leave and she comes out and she talks to this woman and she said, are you okay? And the woman doesn't say anything and then she said, what is your name? And the woman said, very softly, Amy. And so Judy is like, oh, that's weird. My daughter's name is Amy. And she's kind of talking like a normal person would, but Amy's being very soft-spoken and Judy doesn't seem to be picking up on the tips. When the woman raises her voice, Amy kind of comes toward her like, you need to be quiet, like shush. Oh, okay. Shush you. And Judy asked her where she was from and she said, Virginia. And then the two men barged back into the bathroom. Judy takes off because she's freaked out. And that was that. Not long after this, the family receives an email from a organization that locates sex trafficking victims on adult websites. Uh, They received that email containing a photo of a woman who appears to be Amy. She's laying on a bed in a bra and underwear and she was being marketed Oh, my God. As a sex worker. Oh, my God. 
So the family is this just kind of reaffirms this idea that Amy was kidnapped and has been since sold into sex work or sex slavery. So the family is obviously torn apart because this looks like Amy. There aren't any identifying tattoos, but her face looks like Amy. And this mom says, this looks like Amy. You, yeah. You know, on one hand, you're thinking you're, you're relieved. Okay. Maybe she's still alive. But on the other hand. Yeah. Oh my God. So the family takes the photos to a forensic detective and says, can you look at this? Because Iva said that when she first looked at it, she didn't think it looked like Amy because this woman looked so sad. And Mm. then her sister, I guess her sister's an artist, and her sister said, that's Amy. Hold it away from your face, squint your eyes, it's Amy. And so as soon as she took like that, um, that part of our brain that recognizes um, the emotions and those familial yeah. recog- recognition points. You know, you know someone because of their smile or you know someone because of their the way that they, you know, look at you. And this woman had a different look, but she still looked like her. The forensic detectives agreed this is this is Amy. And the one of them said he would bet his career on it. No shit. And as I said, this was uh, discovered by an organization that locates sex trafficking victims on adult websites. I know that there are several of these, and there are those that work specifically looking for, uh, looking through uh, video of children who have been involved in sex crimes, um, looking to see if they can find information for families who have missing kids, et cetera, um, which is the most noble work I can think of, and I would love to be able to assist, um, but the thought of it makes me uh, physically ill so the idea is she's been sold into sex slavery and it is like you said a terrible thought but at least there's that hope that she's still alive that she's still out there so there is a $250,000 reward offered by the Bradley family for information leading to her return a $50,000 reward for information leading to verifiable location and the FBI is offering a $25,000 reward for information leading to her recovery report tips which can be anonymous uh, can go to FBI field offices uh, US embassies consulates you can visit FBI.gov um, the the case is still open and uh, they are still, the family is very much still actively searching for Amy Bradley. Over 20 years. 21 years. Holy shit. It sounded like they were really closing in on it. There were a couple of times that they were really close. There was a private detective that they had hired at one point who had provided them with photos of uh, a girl on a beach. And there were uh tattoos that looked like hers mm. in this in the right spots and uh he said that they were closing in on uh her location uh, but his team needed more money and so they they had given him quite a bit of money already they had gave him they gave him an additional hundred thousand dollars that they had borrowed from ron's employer and um it was discovered that uh he and his crew got down there and uh, had no intention of finding Amy. Oh uh, he God. was a con man and stole their money. Um, he went to jail, you know, which is great. But there's so much time. There was like two years put into that investigation. Two years of their time and their efforts and their hope and their money. And, the, you know, so there have been times where they were legit close. And there are times where they were conned. And those people, uh, those, those specific con people uh I don't even believe in hell, but they will burn forever. Horrible, horrible people. In your mind, hell. My mind, hell, they are burning right now. Well, that wasn't a very satisfying ending. No, it's not. Um, but it's How important. How old was she when she was... Uh, when she was she, 23. She was 23 when she disappeared. Yeah. So she's, so she's just a couple years older than I am. Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. And she looks like she was the coolest girl. Like, she was an athlete. She lettered in five sports in high school. Um, she had, like, this cute pixie cut, like, super 90s kind of pixie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, she was a lifeguard. And she just looked like a really cool, outgoing, beautiful girl. And uh, then it seems like her whole life was stolen from her. Yeah. And her family has no idea if she's still alive. 
So if you know anything or if you have seen this beautiful, perfect girl, uh, please, please let someone know. And you will post a picture? Of course I will. Okay. It's the part of the podcast that's been told it looks like child star Mason Reese and takes it as a compliment. This is That Thing in the Middle. On Wednesday, May 16th, 2018, on I-95, Florida Highway Patrol officers pulled over a Nissan sedan. After observing erratic driving, Inside the car, Port St. Lucie resident Scott Allen Garrett, 56, smelled like alcohol. There was an open bottle of 92-proof Sailor Jerry spiced rum on the passenger seat. He was slurring his words and had, quote, very red, glassy, and bloodshot eyes. According to the police report, Jerry then told the officers that, no, he hadn't been drinking and driving. It was actually his dog who had been doing the driving. Now that would have been pretty amazing on its own, except that there was no dog in the car, which was probably better for the dog. Garrett was charged with DUI. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is a test of the Box of Oddities emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Had this been an actual Box of Oddities, I'd be talking a lot faster. Emails, we get some. Um, This one came in, curator at theboxofoddities.com. A few episodes ago, Jethro suggested we ask our grandfathers to tell us stories that we'd never heard before. Yes, everyone should do this. I mean, unless your grandfather's horrible, and then don't speak to him. That right. That's not a good plan. Or dead. You know. I mean, yeah, or that. You could still talk to them if they're dead, I guess. Sure, I guess. Just the stories are boring. Super boring. <laughs> 
So I did that and I got the greatest story with documentation as proof. My grandfather was experimented on during the White Sands nuclear testing. What? The way he tells it is his entire unit was shoved into a bus and transported to the site where the bombs were detonated. Uh, There was rubble from what remained of the houses. None of the guys in his unit were aware that they were at the blast site of a nuclear test. My grandfather was instructed to rummage through the rubble along with his unit to, quote, see what they could find, although they weren't told what they were looking for. About 30 minutes later, guys in hazmat suits ordered them back on the bus where they were taken to a medical facility for a a full examination. No further details were given by Grandpa, but I assume a full physical and possible decontamination was involved. Apparently, the government denied that this occurred for about 50 years because of classified information sure not because of we made bad choices because we're dinks information right but after years of inquiries they finally sent him a letter stating that he was in fact a test subject at white sands i have seen the letter my grandfather goes on to say that of his unit he supposedly was the last survivor the only one not to get terrible cancer at some point in his life I question that part because it sounds like an embellishment by my grandpa. (laughs) But the comic book guy inside me thinks he got superpowers from this. (laughs) My grandpa is 89 and I'm convinced he will outlive us all. Hope you enjoyed this. Feel free to share it with the fellow freaks. Oh, I love it. And that comes from Jim. Thanks, Jim. Boy, wow. What a treat. There's so many great stories that our family has that we don't know. Ask. And then share with us. Yes, please. In the last episode, I mentioned Dirty Birdie, King Edward, and his sex chair. Oh, see, when you said Dirty Birdie, I immediately thought of Misery, because that's what she called <laughs> yes, the, the author was, you Dirty Birdie. I remember that. Oh, God. I still get queasy when I think of that movie. <laughs> the hobbling part? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that, the idea of his sex furniture got me thinking about... Um, sex furniture? Yeah, yeah, well, that and sex in the 19th century. Okay. And so I came across an article uh, on allthatsinteresting.com and... Like, has sex changed? Sex protocol has, somewhat. Sexicate? Yeah. There are a lot of things that go into this. For example, and and some of it has to do with personal hygiene and and, and things of that nature. Oh, sure. Sex in the 19th century. Here we go. Have you ever noticed when you you look at formal portraits or or photos from the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s of gentlemen, they're always wearing not just a shirt and a vest, but a jacket? Yeah, they've got layers. They have many layers. And especially if they're in the presence of a woman, they are wearing these many layers. Do you ever wonder what the reason is for that? No, I just thought it was fashion. Fashion. Okay. Well, so did I. But no, the reason was body odor. Oh, no. Well, hygiene back then was largely optional. Sure. um, And very, uh, very sparse. But, I mean, if you're putting more layers on, isn't your body odor going to be worse? Yeah, but it would hold the stink in was was the idea. I don't think that's accurate. Uh But it was considered rude for a gentleman to not wear a jacket around a lady, especially around a lady, because, you know, he would offend her with his disagreeable effluvia. Ah. Here are a few rules for gentlemen uh, from the 19th century. Quote, a gentleman should never remove his coat while standing, sitting, riding, or walking with a lady, and shall never ask a lady to dance if he has removed his coat. So that would it would hold in the armpit stink. Okay. Basically is what they were hoping for standing sitting walking or riding what about paragliding i don't think they had invented that yet <laughs> whatever victorian error paragliding you only did it once <laughs> yeah, <I did. laughs> now armpits of course you know they were worried about armpit stick stinking but apparently not so much about uh, butts because you were encouraged to bathe nude at the beach Oh, okay. Yeah, that was, in fact, when when bathing suits started to come into into the norm, mm-hmm. um, oh man, people were pissed, including a Victorian minister at his church. I don't understand. I didn't think you were supposed to be nude around women at all. It's o- it was okay at the beach. A Victorian minister at his church in 1873 
uh, was complaining about all the prudes who were requiring people to wear bathing suits. This is all new to me. He said, the detestable custom of bathing drawers are now becoming the norm. And then he went on to say, after saying that, you know, he always bathed nude at a public beach. Sure. That, quote, the young ladies strolling near seemed to have no objection. Now, I've seen, like, illustrations of bathing suits from the days of yore. Is it not that yore-y? Not that yore-erific? Prior to the, like, 1870s, um, in Victorian England anyway, it was uh, considered normal to bathe nude at the beach. And photography was in its infancy, and even if there were cameras, probably that was discouraged because of the conflicting sexual... Oh, sure. Let's talk about sex workers. Prostitution in Victorian times. Um, That was a vice that everybody loved. In 1857, it was estimated that there were over 9,000 sex workers in London alone. I don't think I know enough about the population of London to know if that's a lot. It's a lot. Oh. And there was great concern about these fallen flowers. It was great concern (sighs) that they, they could actually be bettering themselves by toiling in a workhouse. Oh, sure. Factory work is much better. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, there were almost 9,000 prostitutes. Mm. So somebody was paying for that. Mm-hmm. At the time, temperance crusaders were very concerned about the uh, moral toll that uh, their chosen vocation was wreaking upon them. So, right. I, I, again, I'm sorry. This is the it's the sex workers' fault that the men in the community are taking advantage of these sex workers. And so, what happened was, ultimately, all nine thousand sex workers were turned out into the street. They closed the brothels. And then when 9,000 unemployed sex workers were in the streets... uh, Is that when street walking became a thing? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. It created even worse conditions for these women. Well, of course. And so they started rounding them up for health inspections and uh, job training in the exciting career of pantry maid or stable worker. But guys, you know, back then they were still totally paying for for sex all the time. Um, and, uh, here's the interesting thing. Of course, Victorian law did not allow a woman to divorce her husband for adultery Mm. unless cruelty could be proven in court. Another form of sexual release in Victorian times, absolutely forbidden to be gay. I don't understand how that's accurate in any way. Have you seen all those ruffles? Homosexuality was totally forbidden. So much so that even Oscar Wilde, who was caught up in that whole witch hunt mentality at the time, was sentenced, uh, he and his boyfriend, to two years of hard labor for lewdness. And then at the end of the trial, he asked to speak, Oscar Wilde asked to speak to the court in his own defense. And I'm sure he had something hilarious to say because it was Oscar Wilde. Sure. He probably stayed up the night before, you know, penning this brilliant retort. But as he started to speak, people in the uh, in the uh, courtroom just started yelling, shame, shame, shame. Mm. My favorite Oscar Wilde quote is, uh, uh, it's something that I remind myself when I'm feeling like a little bad about the things that I'm partaking in. Like sometimes I'm all like, I shouldn't have all this cake or, you know, (laughs) you know, uh, Oscar Wilde. uh, Moderation is a fatal thing. Nothing succeeds like excess. (laughs) Yeah, that's I love it. Uh, That's beautiful. And of course, his now famous quote, I'm paraphrasing here on his deathbed. They asked him how he was doing. And he said, either this wallpaper goes or I do. Of course, he was also an opiate addict, so probably not the best advice from. (laughs) He was still he was a funny opiate addict. He was a funny gay opiate addict. Right. But. With advice on moderation? That's probably a good point. So the Victorian attitude uh, toward homosexuality was, you know, pretty, pretty rough. And it had kind of a a strange effect. So few people were willing to consider even the existence of the lesbian that most of them just kind of lived their life and nobody even paid attention to them. It was, they were out in the open, a couple of women just living together. But because at the time, they didn't even want in Victorian times to believe 
that women could be gay, that they just turned the other way. Right. They're just old ladies who like to live together. Right. They they consider them... They're spinsters. They call them Boston marriages in the colonies. Oh, wow. Boston marriages is a term that uh, refers to a non-sexual relationship between two women who just live outside of having to have been supported by a man at the time. They called it a Boston marriage. Because Boston women have money? I have no idea. I had never heard that phrase until today, and I had to look it up. What do you think the age of consent was during the Victorian days? Oh, gosh. For women or men? Because I imagine... It would be viewed as different. It doesn't say if there was a difference between the two sexes. But I would assume that they mean women. Probably, yeah. 10 to 12 years old. Well, that's gross. The good news is in 1875, it was raised to the age of 13. Oh, wow. Well. And then in 1885, raised again to 16. That's pretty rapid, considering. Mm-hmm. At some point, there was like kind of an enlightenment and uh, society started to rescue adolescents, especially young girls, from predators. And here's the thing. In Victorian times, they provided zero, no sex education to adolescents and teenagers, but yet letting them have sex and get married. Sure. You know, just they didn't want you know, to have to tell them about it. They just wanted them to do it. The Women's Medical Companion, which was published in 1880, claimed to be a uh, comprehensive guide to female health and anatomy. But the only time they even mentioned female genitalia in the entire book was in regards to childbirth. No menstruation? No menstruation. No masturbation? No masturbation. Interesting. No, no. And in something called the Mosher Survey which recorded sexual attitudes of a group of Victorian women, reported that a high percentage of women during that time period learned about sex from watching farm animals. Oh, that's encouraging. I always wondered about, like, in the very early days of humanity, how how did we pick up the sexual activity equals pregnancy thing? Because the time period, you know, is, is all wonky. And when did they figure that out? That's an excellent question, and one that might make a a really good future topic, actually. Of course, during the Victorian era, motherhood was thought to be the highest purpose for a woman. In marriage, women were required to produce heirs. But, of course, sexual intercourse for any other reason was strictly uh, prohibited and and considered immoral. Right. Again, I know several people currently who believe that. (laughs) Okay. There was actually a fear of women's sexuality, and sometimes it took a a nasty turn. Doctors would perform a clitoridectomy on women who had epilepsy or showed signs of insanity or what they called hysteria. It's genital mutilation. It's genital mutilation. They believed that it would cure the diseases because it relieved women of sexual desire. Sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, Victorians also believed that men were preoccupied with sex naturally, and that was fine. But it was the wife's job to help prevent sexual activity. They were supposed to be guided by their maternal instincts, Mm -hmm. not their sexual desires. Sure. There was a book that was out. It was called, uh, and this was in 1894, Sex Tips for Husbands and Wives. And I want to give you, this this comes right from this book from 1894. (sighs) Okay. The wise bride will permit a maximum of two brief sexual experiences weekly. And as time goes by, she should make every effort to reduce this frequency. Feigned illness, sleepiness, and headaches are among the best friends in this manner. And then it became a comedy punchline in the 70s sitcom era. Oh, she's got a headache again. A selfish and sensual husband can easily take advantage of his wife. One cardinal rule of marriage should never be forgotten. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Otherwise, what could have been a proper marriage could become an orgy of sexual lust. This is so upsetting. (laughs) A wise wife will make it her goal never to allow her husband to see her unclothed body and never allow him display his unclothed body to her. Well, no, that's, that's just good sense considering the smell. Many women have found it useful to have thick cotton nightgowns for themselves and pajamas for their husbands. They need not be removed during the sex act. Thus, a minimum of flesh is exposed. Wow, that's hot. Sexy. When he finds her, 
she should lie as still as possible. Bodily motion could be interpreted as sexual excitement by the optimistic husband. Sex, when it cannot be prevented, should be practiced only in total darkness. <laughs> wow, when it, when it can't be prevented. If he attempts to kiss her on the lips, she should turn her head slightly so that it falls harmlessly on her cheek instead. If he lifts her gown and attempts to kiss her any place else, she should quickly pull the gown back in place, spring from the bed, and announce that nature calls and run to the toilet. And then finally, I... I feel like I have to run to the toilet. <laughs> this is one of my, one of my favorite tips. Arguments, nagging, scolding, and bickering prove very effective if used in the late evening, about an hour before the husband would normally commence his seduction. Oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's a good way to avoid having to have sex is just start a fight. Yep. Cool. That's what they were going for. Wow. So there you have it. Sex in the 19th century. That's gross. Yep. And it smelled bad. Nothing about that was good. No. What's good is that we don't live in that time. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of advancement that has been made, some still. Mm -hmm. Why is it always up to the women? Why is it always the because, women's responsibility? Because the guys are busy running the world, Ugh. sweetie. Are we fighting? Yeah. Is this an hour before the seduction begins? <laughs> the seduction will not begin. <laughs> I'm putting on my flannel. Okay, so any hoozle, that's what I have for you <laughs> today. The Box of Oddities Halloween Tour. October 16th, San Francisco at Cobb's Comedy Club. October 27th at Laugh Boston in Boston. October 29th, Comedy Zone in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then October 30th, Halloween Eve, Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville. Tickets are on sale. Well, San Francisco will be soon, but you can just find all of the information on our website, theboxofoddities.com. It's going to be so fun. Look for the box of oddities to land on your phone Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.